Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute and part of the Christians for Liberty Network. I am your host, Doug Stewart, and I have with me today Dr. Calvin Beisner, who is the founder and national spokesman of the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation, a network of Christian theologians, natural scientists, economists, and other scholars educating for biblical earth stewardship, economic development for the poor, and the proclamation of the defense of the good news of salvation by God's grace received through faith in Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. Cal, thanks for joining me. Well, thank you very much. Appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, well, some of our listeners might actually know that you were recently interviewed on the Reformed Libertarians podcast, their Mm -hmm. 10th episode, and there is a ton of information about your background and credentials and some of your interests. But just to give us a little bit of a sense of who you are and what is the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation, we'll start with that and we'll then get into what does it look like for Christians to care for the creation biblically without going all leftist environmentalists like a lot of people think. Right. Okay, great. Well, first and foremost, of course, I'm a Christian. I'm somebody who came to know the Lord Jesus Christ as my blessed Savior and my Master, and I have been seeking to serve Him since early in high school. In fact, I had the reputation of the campus preacher for <laughs> four years there in high school. I, I would preach to anything that moved. And I ran into a lot of objections to the Christian faith, of course, and so very early on I developed the habit of looking for answers to those objections, and that got me into theology and apologetics and philosophy and the like. And so for a good while, the first 10, 15 years of my Christian life, I was basically focused on personal evangelism, one-to-one, and then apologetics to serve that. In the early 1980s, though, I was brought to recognize the importance of what the scriptures teach about the responsibility of Christians toward particularly the poor and the oppressed. And that enlarged my interests, moved me into studying economics and political philosophy and the like. And that in turn led to, well, my doing a master's in economic ethics under the late Russell Kirk, one of the great thinkers of the conservative movement of the 20th century. And then eventually, quite a long time later, a PhD in Scottish history, but focusing specifically on the political thought of the late 17th century Scottish covenanters, who were an important part of the moves toward greater liberty, more limits on government, smaller state, things of that sort. And in the meantime, I was asked to write a book on biblical introduction to economics for the Turning Point Christian Worldview book series Mm -hmm, put out mm -hmm. by Crossway in the late 1980s, which I did. And one chapter of that was supposed to be on the connection of population and resources and the environment. And I told the editors as I worked, no, that can't be done in a chapter. It's just way too big. We're going to have to dump that. And they said, well, why don't you instead just do a second whole book just on that, which I did. So those two books, 1988's Prosperity and Poverty, The Compassionate Use of Resources in a World of Scarcity, a 
biblical introduction to economics. And in 1990, Prospects for Growth, a biblical view of population resources in the future, built my reputation as a scholar in those fields. And over the years following that, as I spent eight years teaching interdisciplinary studies at Covenant College in Lookout Mountain, Georgia, from 1992 to 2000, and then eight years teaching historical theology and social ethics, but also some systematic theology and apologetics and logic and various other subjects at Knox Theological Seminary in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. I was doing those teaching things at the same time that I was also doing a great deal of reading, research, and writing in biblical earth stewardship is sort of the phrase Mm -hmm. that I use for it, which is distinct from environmentalism in that we base it in a firmly biblical worldview, and we try to use really, really good quality science and economics, which is quite different from most of the environmental movement. Mm -hmm. And our aim is to understand what it means for us to fulfill the mandate that God gave to mankind in Genesis 1.28. Having created Adam and Eve in his own image, male and female, God blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and everything that moves on the face of the earth. We want to really explore what that dominion looks like and how to achieve it. And unfortunately, a lot of the environmental movement objects to the whole idea of human dominion and says instead that we should live in harmony with nature, that we should embrace a sort of a biological egalitarianism, all life is equally valuable, and so on, that we should have no hierarchy of life in the world. Mm. And partly they've gone that direction because they think that the idea that man is supposed to subdue and rule the earth is the basis of people's exploiting and badly misusing the earth. And what we point out is that, look, if we're to understand that verse in its context, our dominion, since we are made in God's image, should reflect his. And his is illustrated in the first 25 verses of Genesis, where he starts with nothing and makes everything. He brings light out of darkness, order out of chaos, life out of non-life, and a great abundance and a variety of life, and tells every variety of life to reproduce and fill its niche in the world. So our dominion should reflect God's by our seeking to enhance the fruitfulness and the beauty and the safety of the earth to the glory of God and the benefit of our neighbors so that we're really addressing the two great commandments to love God and to love neighbor. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the, the vision and the mission of Cornwall Alliance is to educate the public and policymakers about this biblical earth stewardship Combined with economic development for the poor around the world, what is it that lifts whole societies out of poverty and keeps them out of poverty? And we try to do those together, tied with the gospel and the whole biblical worldview. I can imagine in the late 80s, early 90s, that was when I think the environmental movement, the secular environmental movement, we could call it, was picking up steam and getting a little bit greater attention, sometimes through governmental awareness like being aware of littering and you can prevent forest fires and we need to take care of the world around us kind of stuff, which of course is true. I can imagine though that during that time, there were a lot of people who were very much the no impact, dominion is bad kind of 
thinking that you would have to be a lot more combative and engage in more apologetics against that. Was that actually yes. the case or was it more like, hey, you know what, we just concurrently decided that we're going to, you know, preach the gospel, yeah. preach the good news to the poor and also include this as part of the dominion mandate? Or yeah. was it actually a lot of sort of, yeah, like the word is combative as comes to mind for me. <laughs> yeah. Combative is perhaps not the best image for it, but yeah, <laughs> correction of mistaken thinking is okay. really an important part. I mean, if there's one verse in the Bible that really I would see as my life verse, it would be 1 Thessalonians 5.21, test all things, hold fast what is good. Mm. So I'm always reading with a skeptical eye. I'm thinking, is this true? How do I know it's true? What are the reasons behind it? Does it comport with Scripture? And so on. And so, for example, as I first began really looking into economics, I was prompted in that direction by reading Ron Sider's book, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger, back in the late 70s. And as I read it, I thought to myself, you know, I don't know anything about economics, but I know biblical interpretation and I know logic. And mm. he's made a mess of both of those. <laughs> One of his economics is likewise. It seems to me that people could do a lot of harm with the very best of intentions by following yeah. his advice. So I then studied economics, read a whole bunch of textbooks in it, and <laughs> just made a big deal out of it and wound up doing a master's and critiqued it and found that, yeah, Ron Sider who later became a friend of mine, actually, had really misunderstood a lot about economics, and it needed correction if the church were not to do a lot of harm with the best of intentions. Well, similarly, on the environmental front, what I found as I read various Christians writing on environmental stewardship, I saw an awful lot of thinking that was really unbiblical in various ways, and in many instances, just went contrary to basic scientific data, to hard observational evidence. So that led not only to my writing the book Prospects for Growth, A Biblical View of Population Resources in the Future, which came out in 1990, but later on to my writing the book Where Garden Meets Wilderness, Evangelical Entry into the Environmental Debate. And I did that as what I hoped would be a very constructive critique of the evangelical environmental movement running from the early 1970s into the early 1990s. And indeed, a few people in that movement wound up thanking me for that. A few others wound up vilifying me for it and <laughs> saying that, well, one of them actually suggested that my head ought to explode. Uh, <laughs> so things were not always all that friendly. Yeah, But yeah, an apologetic, a correcting of mistaken thinking approach has been very important because so many Christians, whether mainline Protestant or evangelical or whatever, so many Christians just simply accept uncritically what secular and you know, Eastern religious environmental activist organizations claim and then they run with that. And we need to not do that. As Christians, we need to test all things, hold fast what is good. Are you familiar with, this is a little bit of a tangent, are you familiar with the, um, I think it was the Green Study Bible from like yes. about a decade ago? Yeah, it was called the Green Bible, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you get to look at that at all? Yes. Uh -huh. There were a number of essays in it that furthered 
just simply scientifically counterfactual ideas. A lot of it was just a matter of, okay, green highlighting passages here and there that seemed to have some implications about environmental stewardship. Some of it made good sense. Some of it was pretty questionable. I don't think it ever really caught on much. Like a bit of a stretch that like that passage was green or something? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it didn't seem to catch on. I mean, most of my engagement with it was in some of the secondhand bookstores and stuff. And yeah. uh, I remember thinking, I mentioned this in a previous episode, I believe, that I, I'm a big stickler for like fonts and things with Bibles. And I was like, wow, if it weren't for the fact that this is like randomly green, I really <laughs> like the typesetting of this Bible. And it was small, it was compact, and I wish I could yeah. have one of these to carry around, but it just seemed a little like not my thing. <laughs> yeah, that it was one good in particular. publication design. Yeah, it was. <laughs> so... There's like so many questions I could ask you here because a lot of my thinking when it comes to understanding science, I'm not a scientist. I don't even play one in a podcast. And so I am woefully behind at understanding how to evaluate scientific claims when I come across them. And I can imagine that there are a number of people who are listening that are probably kind of the same way. They're like, I don't have time to read the science and even like deeply understand it to know whether or not someone's BSing me or right. maybe they believe what they're teaching, but they're just wrong and they don't know it. Yeah, There's a lot to go on. And so a lot of the way that I approach it is I take some people at face value and say, okay, so let's say that you, Mr. Secular Environmentalist, who says that we should have a lower impact on the environment and I should lower my carbon footprint and all this. Let's just say that those things are actually, let's just say that you're right. You still run into economics. You yes. still run into scarcity. You still run into adverse effects to this or that policy. Or even for that matter, if everybody voluntarily decided to do this or that thing, there's still adverse effects. And I'm sure you're familiar with Alex Epstein a bit. Absolutely, yes. And his view of a human-centered approach as opposed to a no-impact approach. Yeah. And I'd love to hear your take on that. You might need to describe it for our listeners if they're not familiar with it. Yeah, Epstein's approach on this is actually very, very helpful. In part, he distinguishes the sort of environmentalist framework for understanding man's relationship with nature by saying that in most of that thought, nature is perceived as nurturing and fragile. That is, if we would just get along well with nature, it would provide everything that we need for long and healthy life. But nature is very fragile, and so our pursuit of a variety of different activities, industrial life basically, mm -hmm. harms nature in ways that makes it so that it can't nurture us so well. Now, that's kind of the dominant environmentalist narrative or framework for understanding man and nature. What Epstein offers as an alternative to that, and I think this is actually very close, interestingly, to the biblical understanding, is that instead, nature is robust, resilient, actually very good at surviving all kinds of big problems, but it's actually not very nurturing left to its own. And as a result, if human beings are supposed to thrive, we have to change nature. We have to change it from non-nurturing to nurturing. Now, you don't have to be into really in-depth, detailed scientific work or economic work, either one, to realize that nature is not all that naturally nurturing. Think about 
how many people could survive if all the food we got, we had to get just simply from hunting and gathering. No farming, no industrial work, just hunting and gathering. Well, various research has been done on that, and the answer is that in most circumstances, even in the best environments, you couldn't support more than about one or two people per square mile that way. Well, human population now in the world is well over 300 people per square mile. (laughs) So that would mean that well over 99% of us wouldn't be able to live on this planet if we just depended on nature. Well, okay, so how about... uh, Yet here we are, and we're surviving. (laughs) Yeah. So how about instead subsistence-level agriculture, where basically everybody is involved in growing food, but we haven't industrialized things so that one farmer can feed his own family plus about 80 or 90 other people. We just are all involved in farming. Well, what we found was that when that's the way you live, until you get the percentage of the population of a country that is actually farming down below 50%, below half, you cannot significantly improve life expectancy and infant and child mortality from what they are in basically a hunting and gathering society. And that is life expectancy at birth of about 27 or 28 years and infant and child mortality rate, that is the rate at which people die before their fifth birthdays, of about 50%. Half of kids would die before they turned five. So then we have to ask, do we value human beings enough that we want to change that to do things that enable us to grow much more food and then to free more people from growing food so that they can do things like developing mesh window screens that keep disease-bearing insects out of the house. That's actually one of the most important improvements mm-hmm. ever made in human health. So that people It didn't even can, involve chemicals to do it. Yeah. So that people can make tractors whereby one man can cultivate as much land in a day as a thousand people could do by hand. And so what we find is if we really are valuing human beings, this objection to industrialization, this objection to high-yield, intensive, mechanized farming just is not compatible with a high value on human beings. And so with God having told us in the beginning to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it, minimize your environmental footprint, specifically your carbon footprint. Mm -hmm. The live in harmony with nature message is quite incompatible with that. Now, what we also find, going back to Epstein's way of dividing the environmentalist worldview from the worldview that he describes, and I would say that it's basically the Christian worldview, though he's not, as far as I know, specifically a Christian, but he's very friendly to our thinking, and he's friendly to me, as I am to him. The other aspect is, well, is the earth, in fact, fragile? And the answer is no, it really is not. It has recovered from snowball earth. It has recovered (laughs) from ice ages in which ice sheets mile to three miles thick covered 
all of the Northern Hemisphere down to the latitude of San Francisco and St. Louis and Washington, D.C., and so on. It's recovered from volcanoes that have obliterated vast sections of forest, all sorts of different things that the Earth has recovered from. And frankly, what mankind has done to it is still minuscule compared with Mm. any of those things. And so what we find, instead of being a highly fragile place, a notion that demands that feedbacks in natural systems be positive, that is, whatever might perturb the system, the feedbacks in it are going to exaggerate that and multiply it, making it worse and worse and worse. Feedbacks need to be largely negative for the planet to be so robust and resilient. And that's actually exactly what we find in the scientific study of ecosystems is that they are dominated by negative feedback mechanisms, which minimize and shrink the impact of any perturbation, not by positive feedback mechanisms. And that, by the way, is why the fear of catastrophic global warming from minute change in atmospheric chemistry carbon dioxide going from about 280 parts per million before the Industrial Revolution to it'll be 560 parts per million by the time it has doubled late this century. The idea that that's going to cause catastrophic warming depends entirely on the assumption that the climate system is dominated by positive feedback mechanisms, whereas what we actually learn from observation is that it is dominated by negative feedback mechanisms. So CO2's warming effect is small and diminishing because with every addition of CO2, the new stuff does less warming than the old stuff did because it's a logarithmic relationship. Mm -hmm. Basically what happens is that it's filling up the various different bandwidths of infrared energy bouncing out from Earth to space. And once those are filled up, you can add more CO2 and not absorb any more because there's just not more in those bandwidths to absorb. One way that I've addressed this when I'm discussing with people the environment or when we're advocating for creation care, biblical earth stewardship in your phrase, which I rather like, by the way. Thank you. As opposed to just simply a no impact environmentalism is the impact that pretty much any policy that's out there right now that's being proposed or suggested outside of the like random let's cool the earth with technology kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, put soot into the atmosphere and all that. Outside of those things, but maybe even those as well, are really harmful to the poor. And it seems like that particular angle seems to be, at least for those of us fighting the left on this particular topic, is that they have a conflict of goals. In that they want the world's poor to be not poor, and they also want the climate to not warm, they want there to be no impact. And as many people have pointed out on kind of our side of this discussion, is that the people who are just surviving in India really don't care about whether or not the globe is warming in the way that the elite in the West are worried about it. Now, one could say that like, well, they better be worried because their grandkids are going to really suffer more than they are. But that doesn't justify any particular policy that keep the world's poor, poor. Yeah, it was really my concern for the poor around the world that got me into all of this whole interconnected subject area of economics and the environment. What I saw in terms of the embrace of basically socialistic 
spread the wealth, <laughs> you know, redistribute wealth from the richer to the poorer. What I saw of that was that history tells us that just doesn't work. What it does is make everybody equally poor instead of making everybody equally wealthy. And similarly, on environmental issues, what I kept seeing over and over again was that the solutions to alleged environmental problems almost invariably involved slowing, stopping, or reversing the climb out of poverty for people in the developing world. Part of the reason for that is especially that, particularly the climate change alarmist movement, is very, very concerned about reducing our use of fossil fuels. Well, fossil fuels provide roughly 85% of all the energy that human beings use around the world right now. And energy is crucial to overcoming poverty. Clear back in middle or high school, most of us learned that energy is the capacity to do work. Well, work is what brings us food, clothing, shelter, and everything else that we depend on for materially abundant life for health and longevity and prosperity and everything else. So the more energy you can apply, the more work you can get done, and therefore the more of all of those other things. So what we see historically, for instance, is that once we learned to harness the energy in coal and then oil and then natural gas, human productivity just skyrocketed to the tune of roughly 300 times as much per person today as it was two centuries ago. And that is largely because of our ability to apply so much more energy to all the different things that we do. But if we're asking people to cut back on the use of fossil fuels, we need to have substitutes that can perform equally. The problem is that the substitutes that the climate alarmists want us to go to cannot do that. Wind and solar, it's not always windy, it's not always sunny, and even when it is windy or sunny, you don't have what's called energy density. Wind and solar are very, very low-density energy sources, and the cost of making energy that is really useful to us, electricity coming to us through the grid or fuel in our fuel tanks, right? That cost is very, very tightly correlated to the density of the source of the energy. The lower the density at the source, the more you have to ramp it up. And the more costly it is, the higher the density, the less you have to ramp it up and the less costly it is. So coal, oil, natural gas run anywhere from about 600 to 1,200 times the energy density of solar and wind. It's not surprising, therefore, that you can't make energy as cheaply with those. And then there are all sorts of other reasons as well. I mean, they take a whole lot more land. They require a whole lot more minerals to construct the wind turbines and the solar panels. That requires a whole lot more mining, all kinds of other issues. But basically, the problem is that it slows, stops, or reverses the climb out of poverty. And here's a very, very fundamental thing. Again, this is not rocket science. This is basic. Poverty is a far greater risk to human health and longevity than anything related to climate. If you have income equivalent to, say, the bottom 10% of Americans, 
You can thrive in any climate from the Arctic Circle to the Sahara Desert to the Brazilian rainforest. If you're scrimping by on the equivalent of about $2 per day per person, you can't thrive in the best tropical paradise. Mm. And so what we see as an illustration of this is that as poverty has been reduced around the world, human mortality caused by extreme weather events, floods, tornadoes, hurricanes, etc., has fallen by more than 98% over the last 100 years. And it's not because we're getting fewer of such natural catastrophes or less extreme natural catastrophes. There are really no significant change, no, no trend upward or downward in either one of those. It's because our prosperity enables us to protect ourselves from those things. So overcoming poverty is far more important to human well-being than anything related to the quality of the environment around us. But then, two, there's a wonderful thing that's called the environmental transition or the environmental Kuznets curve. In early industrialization, pollution rises compared with the subsistence farming that preceded it. But because that industrialization makes food, clothing, and adequate shelter, and then medical care and so on more affordable for everybody, life expectancy and health rise even as the pollution is rising. But at various different levels of economic development, people begin to be ready to allocate more and more of their incomes to solving the pollution problems. And so at various different levels for various different pollutants, as the industrialization increases and then we move into more and more of a service and technology and an information economy, the pollution levels peak and then they decline. And fairly soon, you actually have less air pollution, less water pollution, less solid waste pollution than you had before the industrialization began. So the reason for that is that, frankly, if you're worried about putting food on the table and a roof over the head and clothing on the back, you don't much care about smog or ozone or anything else like that. But once you've got those things and they're reliable, they're consistent, and you're not really worried about those, then you're ready to say, oh, yeah, you know, I don't like the way this smog hurts my eyes and makes me cough. Mm. Let's spend the money to decrease the emissions from our automobiles. We'll put catalytic converters on them. Costs a little extra, but I can afford that now. So overcoming poverty is actually one of the best steps toward environmental stewardship. Hi, this is Gregory Vouse. And this is Carrie Baldwin. If you're enjoying this podcast, you may want to check out the other shows in the Christians for Liberty Network, such as the Reformed Libertarians podcast, hosted by me and Carrie. We educate and inspire listeners to embrace and promote libertarianism as grounded in the Reformed faith. The Christians for Liberty Network is dedicated to offering a variety of content you love, like what you're hearing in this very episode. So now back to the show, and then be sure to check out reformedlibertarians.com. A lot of the complaint that I often see by people on the left is that the people in our past are bad because they aren't awakened to 
a more ethical way of doing things. Like they believed in slavery and they believed in, <laughs> you know, treating women poorly and all that. You know, you could just say that like, oh, well, we're enlightened now and back in the yeah, past. Yeah, we're they enlightened. Didn't, they, we just rip babies apart in their mother's wombs. Yeah, right. Oh, man. Yeah, well, fair point. <laughs> At the same time, what I wonder is, let's imagine if we could go back in time and maybe suggest an alternate way of doing things. Because to some extent, I guess it's probably fair to say that there were people, industrialists, who did not care about the impact to the environment in a way that, okay, fine, maybe they didn't have great property rights, and so they violated the non-existent property rights. Yeah. But what would be some things, if we could go back and sort of advise the Rockefellers and the robber barons, I don't believe they were robber barons, but the robber You're barons right. of the past were the people who were actually negligent about the environment and were unable to think biblically about earth stewardship. Yeah. You say, look, you've got this product. You can mine the earth to your heart's content for the betterment of the poor and the betterment of society. But here's some limitations that you don't know are going to happen. I realize yeah. this is sort of a thought experiment, but to some extent, I think it helps us in our present day to be more thoughtful in the present about something yes. we might be missing because we're not listening to people who actually have good things to say. Yeah. Well, many of the, what economists would call externalities of various different industrial processes weren't really recognized early on. We didn't understand them. We didn't understand what certain chemical pollutants do to human physiology. And it took a while to learn that. Once we did, then we began to have people coming up and saying, okay, we need to do something about this. Early on, tort action, that is suing for what was essentially trespass, your pollution coming into the air I breathe, your water pollution coming into the water on my property and so on, is an offense. It's a trespass. And so you could go to court and sue and the court could order the polluter to stop the polluting. So that was a part of the early process of beginning to make industrial companies more responsible about such things. We do have to remember that even people who own highly polluting companies usually like their own properties to be nice and clean. And so one of the problems with much of the environmental movement is that it wants to turn more and more land into publicly owned and publicly managed land on the assumption that somehow or other this means that it's going to be taken care of better than when it's in private hands. Now, I have a fairly simple way of challenging that, and that is to ask, why do you find graffiti on public bathroom walls and not on your bathroom wall at home? <laughs> it's because nobody owns the public bathroom walls, no particular individuals, and so nobody has incentive to take care of them. But you do have incentive to take care of your bathroom walls at home. You want good resale value, or if you're a renter, you don't want to lose part of your security deposit. So private property and care of the earth really go hand in hand. That's illustrated on a major scale by the simple fact that the great devastating wildfires that have happened in America's west and northwest in the last decade or so have occurred almost entirely on federal and sometimes state land. 
and very, very little on private land, except where it goes over from the federal or state land into the private land. And that's because forest management on federal and state lands is so poor. It allows so much buildup of extra fuel because they bought into the notion that nature is best untouched by human hands. So when trees drop branches and eventually the trees themselves fall over and when lots of undergrowth builds up and all of that, you just let nature take its course. Instead, on private lands, people nurture their forests for best value. And that means they take out that undergrowth, they pick up the fall, and you don't have so much fuel, so you're not going to have these raging wildfires. Hmm. That's one illustration of how the governmentalization of so much environmental policy actually works the opposite of what it's intended to do. But we learn bit by bit. Humanity, one of Russell Kirk's favorite sayings was, the individual is foolish, the race is wise. And yeah, somewhat. (laughs) One of the things that we find historically is that we have to learn things bit by bit. Nations learn, societies learn, communities learn just as individuals learn. And it's a long process. And we're never going to have paradise here on earth. We live in a fallen world. Human sin is real. And divine judgment because of human sin is real. And so perfection, utopia, is that. You know place, utopia. But we are learning more and more. And the very fact that we've seen human life expectancy rise from about 27 or 28 years prior to the Industrial Revolution, to about 70 years worldwide now and about 80 in advanced economies, that's a wonderful thing. I have one more question for you, and this comes from a place of skepticism about doing nothing with respect to the potential of catastrophic climate change. And I've Mm -hmm. heard this position by other libertarians, or at least ones in conversation with me, is that the cost of doing nothing could be greater because if climate change later becomes a more imminent threat, that is, it sort of ramps up and there's sort of a further threat. I mean, I realize that the environmental left tends to want to make it so that we only have three more years to go, right? <laughs> yeah. I think there was a recent Babylon B article about Al Gore out there saying that, you know, <laughs> something about 2012 and how he was still preaching about 2012 is it's yes. over. Yeah. yeah. But in any case, the threat is that Look, if we don't sort of give in a little bit and let there be some constraint and some limitations on our activities that impact the environment, that eventually governments are going to really create problems because it's going to become this sort of, in a way, I mean, this is before COVID that I heard this argument, but in a way, it's sort of like what happened with COVID. It's like, oh, goodness, we don't know what's going to happen. And so now this is imminent threat. We've got this virus out there. So we just got to lock down. We got to shut down. We got to take over and tell people what to do. Government by emergency. Yes, government by, uh, there we go. I should have, wish I had had that phrase in my head about a minute ago. But anyway, is it reasonable to assume that because we know how governments are and they're going to assert themselves in the assertion of an emergency that may or may not exist, is it okay to go along a little bit and maybe restrict use or be okay with certain policies and so forth? Because- This is why some people actually did stay home during COVID is they're like, well, what happens if I get the virus and I don't know what's going on? This is early on, right? People are just like, 
it's not worth the risk. And so I think a lot of people are risk averse and therefore we need to back off of our environmental activities. Yeah. So anyway, I think you get the gist of my question there. What, do, yeah. what are your thoughts on that? Well, first off, before I get to really the substance, I do want to point this out. I don't think that there is zero role for government and environmental protection. I think I even rather unhappily am willing to say, yeah, some regulation is appropriate. I would far rather see... Well, enforcement of property rights would be a good start. Yeah, right. Enforcing property sure. rights. I mean, Murray Rothbard wrote about that in one of his books, that environmental pollution is basically a failure, not of the market, but of government to enforce property rights because pollution is an invasion of other people's property. And I think that that's entirely appropriate. But should we sort of make a pragmatic compromise saying, well, gee, if it becomes such a catastrophe, governments are going to want to take over more. They'll rule by emergency and they'll dominate our lives. We'll wind up under tyranny to prevent climate disaster. Well, you could apply the same thought to other potential threats to the reduction of the ozone layer around the world or to ocean acidification or to species extinction and so on. You could apply the same reasoning. And what I would just say is, okay, look, some pragmatic compromise is a part of the human condition. We have to live with other people who don't agree with us about all things. And so politics is the art of compromise is one way of putting it, a famous saying. But we have to be asking, does the compromise make sense? And here I would say, look, let's go to what the alarmists consider to be the most authoritative source about climate change, and that is the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Let's go not to their summary for policymakers from each of their periodic reports, which is written by bureaucrats appointed by the various governments, always trying to reflect the government's priorities. Let's go instead to the underlying technical reports, which run thousands of pages, each of three different volumes in each periodic report goes three volumes of a couple thousand pages apiece. Let's go to those and ask, what do they tell us would be the consequences of our doing nothing to reduce our emissions of greenhouse gases, doing nothing to try to limit global warming? But what they tell us is that in the warmest scenarios where we do nothing, average GDP per capita around the world and in every nation around the world is higher than it is in any of the other scenarios where we do a little bit, where we do a moderate amount, where we do a lot to fight global warming. In all of those scenarios, people wind up less prosperous at the end of the century at the end of the next century than they do if we do nothing. In fact, under this essentially business-as-usual scenario, by the end of this century, the poorest countries in the world have GDP per capita that is well above that of the United States today. Now you have to ask yourself, can we thrive with... <laughs> a couple of times the income of current Americans in a world that is two or three degrees warmer than the present world? Absolutely. As I said before, 
poverty is a greater threat than anything related to climate. We can thrive in any climate from the Arctic Circle to the Sahara Desert to the Brazilian rainforest if we are not poor. And so I just don't see any reason to make that compromise. The underlying data just don't support it. Hmm. Well, I appreciate that answer. And I really like how you went to the IPCC as your (laughs) source material, because that's clearly going to be probably the only thing that would work on somebody who's really worried about it. And so that's definitely a solid answer. Well, Cal, I I really appreciate you coming on the show. There's like a dozen more questions that (laughs) I could ask you about this. And so this just gives us an opportunity to talk more in the future. Where can people find the Cornwall Alliance online? And as well, how can they reach you if they wanted to? Right. Cornwallalliance.org. That's cornwallalliance.org is our website. We have thousands of articles and a number of major papers, all free to the public there. We have a e-newsletter that we send out. People can subscribe easily there. We also have a podcast called Created to Rain, and that's on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and pretty much any of the podcast platforms can bring you to Created to Rain. And we have a Facebook page and a YouTube channel, and we're on Twitter at Cornwall Steward, at Cornwall Steward on Twitter. So all of those are ways to learn more from us. And in fact, every month we offer to give a free educational resource as our way of saying thank you when people make a donation of literally any size, doesn't matter Mm -hmm. how large or small. And so each month as people have subscribed to our e-newsletter, they can learn what that educational resource is and decide whether they want to donate to help us out. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization and depend on the donations of our supporters. Excellent. Well, again, thank you for joining me, Cal. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to be with you, and I hope that this will be helpful to many people. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Thank you.